This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Back in December, I attended the Cascadia Music Summit in Boise, Idaho. And the goal of the conference was to share ideas on what Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska could learn from each other and how we can collaborate more. On the previous episode of this podcast, we heard from two artists who spoke at the conference on why coming home from tour is so hard emotionally. The reason why you have artists that do drugs and hard drugs, I can tell you there is no other feeling that matches after you've just completed a show and you actually connected with your audience. And then you go home alone and no one understands what you just felt. And today, I wanted to share a conversation I had at the conference with independent musicians on how to make things work on a shoestring budget, how to work smarter together, and how to create opportunities that didn't exist before. For this conversation, I spoke with the rapper, singer, and writer, Dessa. Not a side piece or a wife piece, I'm a think piece. If you're done then, take your dishes to the sink, please. Wash to the right, dry to the left. Mind is a kite and the fall is a mess. The Denver-based duo Neptune and Rusty Steve. And Eric Gilbert, who runs the Treefort Music Festival and Duck Club out of Boise. Here's the conversation. What's cool about this panel is we're coming from lots of different regions from the country, not just the Cascadia region. And so I'm curious how the music scenes evolved in each of the places where you all grew up, um, because I think it helps inform all of us what we could be doing differently. And Dessa, you, like myself, grew up in the Midwest, you specifically from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Um, And what is interesting about where you grew up in, in the artist community that you were involved with is there was a community around hip-hop labels. Can you talk a little bit about Doomtree and um, Rhyme Sayers and how that helped cultivate an artistic community within um, Minneapolis Twin Cities? Yeah, so you know, I think I, I entered the music industry essentially right after the big collapses that were caused by a lot of the lossless digital media, right? So Napster was there and people who were like two and three years older than me were like, what's going on? And so, but I was just kind of you know, tiptoeing over their, their agonized uh, expressions, kind of new to the world. And I knew that it was a, a horrible time to enter music, but it's like the only time that I was alive. So what are the other options? And I knew also that in a place like Minneapolis, which I think mimics and mirrors a lot of the stories that I've heard told in Boise, it was really unlikely that you were going to be headlining a show and there was going to be somebody in like a cool gray suit with crossed legs smoking inside with a contract in his pocket to sign you and save you from your own life. It was going to happen because you and your friends figured out out of Legos, you know, some sort of system based on spit and fairy dust and duct tape to like get in the van, sell your own stuff, print your own t-shirts, learn how to write a press release, and then find out the names and addresses of the reporters to send it to. I didn't realize at the time how much, like I think we would now call it like apprenticeship was happening in that time and that other artists were game to be like, that's not how you do it. BCC means they can't see the other ones. You know what I mean? But that's kind of those informal ways that artists kick in it. You know, if you were a DJ, carrying the vinyl, right, was the way to get close enough to somebody else's crates to see what they had, figure out how they were blending. And if you were a rapper, like for me, you know, the first time that I rapped in front of an artist who I really cared about and, and was impressed by was like in the parking lot of an old country buffet. And I was too shy to do it with him in the car, so he just got out of the car and pounded out a lunch table beat on the hood so I could rap to the aluminum pounding above my head and roll down the window so he could listen. 
So there was a lot of do-it-yourself, which takes time. It means slow growth. It means we stayed broke for a long time. And it meant that we made all our own calls. We could make any of the music that we wanted to, even if it was an eight-minute song with no repeating chorus that seemed very unlikely to make it on the radio. It meant that I could wear whatever the fuck I wanted as a woman working in music, and I didn't have to ask permission about it, which was a really big deal then for me. And now... I think all of a sudden we're all DIY <laughs> in, a, in a serious way as a lot of the majors have collapsed. So even though it's slow growth, I think one of the benefits is like because the major labels and the major scouts and the major infrastructure sentries weren't there to help you up, but they, are, they also weren't there to tell you where you weren't allowed to go. It was all off-roading. So we could do big, weird collaborations with a metal band and a youth choir and like a flamenco troupe. And no one was there to say that won't work. You know, we got to try it. Did it work? I don't want to talk about that at this time. <laughs> but sometimes it did, you know? Sometimes the unexpected thing that a risk-averse industry professional would be really unlikely to back, we had the opportunity to try and see if the kite would fly. And creatively, that's been a big boon. Um, people who were like rhyme sayers, which, you know, I, when I'm, I was in a crew called Doomtree, very DIY, all of us artists, hey. Uh, and that's still who puts out my records 20 years later, almost now. Um, and we had dreams of getting signed. You know, we were mailing out CDR, burned CDs to the addresses that we found online, so like the HEP labels. But by the time we actually got an interview, and this only happened once for me, I'll admit, but by the time we actually sat down with a label and they slid that deal across the table, I went, we do all this already now. We became an LLC because we had to, right? We figured out where to drop the CDs at Best Buy personally. If we signed this deal, we'd make less than we do now. Because of necessity, we had forged some of those relationships. So it was a chip on shoulder, but I think there was also like, there was also a flag to be flown about, about the grind and the hustle. And I'm sure that that's, in hindsight now, we can look back on that with new eyes about like, what is labor? How should people be compensated? None of us were taking that money home. And we did have interns that we didn't pay. But I admit that in the moment and in the spirit of things, it felt like, it felt like making something out of dust and figuring out how to send it around the country and eventually around the world. And we slept on floors, but we slept on floors in Italy. And that was cool. Um, so Eric, you obviously, you help organize uh, Tree Fort, which I have attended and I am such a huge fan of. Um, I mean, you just take over all of downtown, which is incredibly walkable. You get to see so many different venues or just bars, spaces, and just like, for someone that was, had never been to Boise before, I got to experience all of Boise by coming here for two or three days for a festival. Like I got to really see what Boise was about. And I was like, wow, what a great thing, just like for tourism, but just like for the city itself, for people to like come here, see music for that many days, but just really experience the city through that. And I mean, you come from you know, DIY music community and you saw some things that were lacking in the region, specifically that touring was really hard in the West. You know, there's a lot of rural areas, so how do you get from point A to point B? So can you talk a little bit more about um, the inspiration behind Tree Fort and the impact that it's since made to the music community here? Coming out of the DIY world, like, and, I, and this is kind of what I think is why it's important to have creatives at the table in general, is 
creatives and mu musicians, we naturally, that's just in our DNA to like, we're wanting to create something out of dust, right? We're like looking for opportunity where we can make the world better, right? And so I think one of the beautiful things about the DIY community too, it's very interdependent, very collab collaborative in nature. You know, at that time I was booking all of our tours, but I was sharing spreadsheets with other bands on where the best places to play were all around the country. And so we were all rooting for each other and helping each other get through those things. Now, and at that time, when we were touring out of here in 2000, out of Idaho a lot, when 2007, 2011, a lot of people, it seemed like, didn't even know where Idaho was on the map and definitely didn't think we had a music scene. And then there was the, the flip side is there was all these touring artists that didn't realize there were music fans here that could, they could stop in Boise and not have to drive all the way from Salt Lake to Seattle, which, if you're from Europe, that's clear across Europe. <laughs> so... Um, so the foundation of Treefort was really built on this notion that like, well, let's bring people here, let's help touring artists realize that there's a place here, let's bring visibility to the local artists and build this whole, if, if you're in the original mu music space, it's an import-export business. You can't play, like Ben talked about this, you can't play every, every month really in, in your hometown, so you have to be able to get out and, and so, but then growing up in spaces like this, we also love living in these places. We, I, I was annoyed with this notion that I had to go somewhere else to really pursue what I love. Now, what I love about what we're doing with Treefort and what I felt like the last couple of days have been about, it's about getting a bunch of people in the room and just letting them talk and see what they do. And that's what, you know, a lot of pe people ask us, why so many bands at Treefort? And it's because to represent a lot of different voices, a lot of different regions, there's a lot of different, a lot of different people. And so for us, the way we look at it is we're curating for the artist experience first and then we're inviting the public in to see what artists are excited about. So that's the foundation of what Treefort Tree has built. And that you also champion a lot of emerging, emerging artists, which KXP's radio station also yes. loves. So Dessa, you have a lot of ideas about how to make the music industry more efficient. I remember when I started my show, I was like, you know, I really want to talk about artists that have really interesting backstories behind their albums. Who should I talk to? And they're like, well, Dessa just put an album together after working with neuroscientists to look at her brain to fall out of love with her ex. <laughs> and I was like, that's a story, okay. They're like, oh, but we already interviewed her. Dang it. Um, and so that project not only has inspired an album, but also has inspired some merch. Tell me about some of your merch that you've been able to sell and just how much of that also just like, you know, as, as I know, I think everyone knows with the streaming economy, you have to think of lots of different ways to make an income work and merch is one of those parts of the equation. So talk about some of the fun things that you've done with your merch, um, including something that has to do with that neuroscience brain image. So in some way, you know, I share this as a success story and a story of failure, and that I think the, region, the reason that, that artists have had to be so innovative in their merch game, right, is because all the other games are very hard to monetize. So the joke in my band was always like, we're not musicians, we're traveling t-shirt salesmen, right? And our ad is the song that we've written, you know? I made on my last tour more money by, I don't know, probably a factor of three uh, selling dish towels than I did vinyl, you know? <laughs> Uh, so for this project, I had uh, to maybe kind of tagging into what Terry had mentioned in the last panel about just working across whatever venue, whatever disciplines your skill sets allow you to access, to diversify your income, and in that way also shield yourself from changing, you know, shaky markets. 
Um, I had worked with a series of neuroscientists, shout out to the University of Minnesota and to neurofeedback practitioner Penny Jean. I had essentially imaged my brain following some previous protocols that had already been done by a, uh, by a scientist, Dr. Helen Fisher, who put people who were in love into an fMRI machine, that's the one that can monitor the activity of your brain in real time, and as they contemplated images of people with whom they were in love, a particular part of the neuroanatomy would consistently activate. There's three parts. One of them was called the caudate. Short story long, I went in to a 7T, a very high magnet fMRI machine. The world spun. Some people can taste metal because the magnets are so strong when you go in. We imaged my brain and the lab was kind enough to give me a 3D print of that part of my own brain and I got to hold it in my hand and I was tweaking out as a student of science and as someone who was in love with this guy who had been trying to excise that particular love for a really long time. And I thought, yo, this would be kick-ass merch. So we took it to a jeweler, we bronzed it, and we sold it for 85 bucks a pop. And they went out of sale pretty quick. So we bronzed it, and then I also printed drinkware where we used thermal ink so that you could see my profile in silhouette on an fMRI machine. And then when you filled it with real cold bourbon, that part of the brain would light up in love. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> Um, you know, so speaking to this, this idea that, you know, just trying to make it work financially, um, you know, you also had some ideas of just like how to, how to make things work with a shoestring budget. Like, hey, I want to shoot a music video. Let's work with the local, you know, film school. Like, what are some ideas in your head of like how to make it work, if, especially if you're up and coming on a shoestring budget? Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about like the sharing of resources, it is not the case that your biggest competition is an artist similar to you. Most people, if they really care, can come on both Thursday and Friday night to a show, right? Your biggest competition is like folding laundry. I have to make sure my concert warrants you doing laundry on the weekend. That's my biggest competition. And there are so many resources that artists can share that are zero dollars and zero cents where somebody is a great photographer and I say, I am a lousy photographer. Will you take my press shot? I am a very good writer, and you can't write. I will write your bio. And then you've made a really natural exchange. And if somebody's got that press list, yo, offer to drive on their next tour. You know what I mean? Do a favor for them where you say, can I get that press list? Because that took 12 hours to create and another five to maintain. An accurate press list is priceless. And you've definitely got some labor that they'd probably be willing to trade for it. So I think the idea that, um, that your most immediate peers are antagonistic is entirely unfounded in this industry. In other, re on other things, it's true. If you're selling soap, people only need so much. You'll buy his or you'll buy mine. It's not like that with music. We can rise together. And there really is a tide that lifts most ships in the vicinity. So I think there's a lot of hustling for free that can be done in a bartering economy while people are struggling how to figure out how to get in the black for that first time on the record or for the first time on the fourth record. Um, Neptune, when I was speaking to you, something that, that you brought up, well, as we're talking about what could we be doing in the region, what's, what's kind of some points of inspiration, you had mentioned Fort Collins Music District. Can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of your perspective is of it and anything we could learn from what Fort Collins is doing? There is a collective called the Music District in Fort Collins. And essentially, artists are able to go up there and work on music. 
you donate your time, teach a master class, that's what we did. We pulled up one of our sessions for one of our songs, talked about it, spoke on it, and we worked on music for like six days. And it was literally, I heard somebody speak online and they were talking about how artists, in order for us to make great art, it's not always our job to be a marketing team, i.e. creating, promoting all the time, you know what I'm saying? But to really just go away, say screw the world, and go create. And that's really what that was. And having knowing that there isn't like a resource like that, and knowing what we were able to create in that time, it's absolutely transformative um, on our perspective. Eat that up. <laughs> I'm trying to think what else to say about it. No, but yeah, they, they put us up in this house for free for six days to record with really nice equipment that I wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to use. Like they had a, a Prophet 6, which is like a really, really nice synth that I've like dreamed of using. But and for six days, I was able to use it. And it was amazing. We've we made like probably one of our favorite songs using that synth and yeah how is that district funded though philanthropist named Pat. philanthropy yep. yeah yeah only philanthropy. there's a foundation a family yeah wow nice which hint hint <laughs> how do we find one of those all right well our time is up thank you all so so much thank you for all your perspectives thanks everyone for being here <laughs> That was my conversation at the Cascadia Music Summit with rapper, singer, and writer Dessa, Eric Gilbert of Treefort Music Festival and Duck Club, and the Denver-based duo Neptune and Rusty Steve. That was Sound and Vision. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and review it. Those little things go a long way in letting other people know that this podcast exists and is worthy of their time. That word of mouth means so much, especially coming from KEXP, where this podcast is based out of. We are a publicly funded station. We don't like throwing lots of money out for advertising dollars to try to get people. We want it to be about community, word of mouth. So again, subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review it, or share an episode with a friend. You can also help financially support this show with a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.